0: Welcome to Let's Talk Literature, a podcast about novels, poetry, and authors. I'm your host, Thomas Worthington. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Julia Crete, a professor of English and history at York University. Today, we're discussing... George Orwell's Animal Farm, a pointed satire about the Russian Revolution and its consequences. I will warn you that there are spoilers to Animal Farm, so if you have not read the novel yet, I highly recommend you do so before listening to this podcast. It really was a lovely conversation, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So without further ado, please enjoy the episode. Okay, Professor Julia Crete, how are you?
1: I'm fine, Thomas. Thank you for asking me to do this podcast.
0: Excellent. So today we're gonna talk about Animal Farm by George Orwell. And uh, well, I kind of wanted to start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Like what's your area of focus and like kind of how your career path has uh, unfolded.
1: Um, Well, I'm a bit of an accidental English prof. I actually on paper anyways, have three degrees in history. Oh, so wow. I've always been drawn to the most historical um, of the genres. And over my career at York, almost 25 years now, um, I have taught um, nonfiction, literary nonfiction, and satire um, and memory studies. So those have been the staples. And now I'm teaching a course on autobiography as well. But, you know, I've made sure to make that kind of a perverse course. Um everything that isn't really quite autobiography. So uh, I like the mix of, of history and literature. And, you know, they, they, were, they were twins that were separated at birth somewhere, you know, in, in the early, early 20th century. Um, but as disciplines, they really, they are sister disciplines. So I teach the most historical of the genres and satire, you cannot understand satire without historical context.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Well George Orwell's Animal Farm is definitely just packed with history. When I was like brushing up on it, I, I had to read about, you know, the October Revolution, you know, Trotsky, Stalin, everything. So, very much falls in line with uh, your focus. So, where did you study initially? Like where did you get your undergrad and
1: I got an undergrad in history from the University of Victoria in uh, Vancouver. Sorry, in Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> not quite awake yet. Um, (laughs) I got uh, um, a master's in history and philosophy of education from the University of Toronto, OISE, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. And then I went to the University of California, Santa Cruz, uh, to do a PhD in history of consciousness, which was this wild and wonderful program. It still sort of exists, but in its heyday, it was a place where you could do Everything interdisciplinary. Um, so you know, I studied with some of the, the the great sort of cultural theory minds of of the twentieth century. Hayden White. Uh, I studied historiography with Hayden White. I studied sort of science studies with Donna Haraway. Um, uh, literary studies and psychoanalysis and feminism with Teresa de Lauretis. Um, yeah, there were just a uh, Jim Clifford who studied really. St- started the field of cultural studies was there then. It was, um, it was an exciting time um, to be in that program and, and uh, lots and lots of interesting ideas came out of it. Mm. So when I say I'm an accidental English prof, I really <laughs> kind of am. I was hired as a theorist. Um, and then the first course they gave me when I walked in the door, was satire. And I said to, to the chair at the time, I don't know the first thing about satire. And he said, Oh, it's all right. You just have to stay one step ahead of the students. <laughs> and I feel like I'm still just one step ahead of the students.
0: So when did the, so I guess the uh, literary part of your focus didn't really, it wasn't really a, a pursuit, I guess, or like, well, I'd
1: always studied literature. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I I was a keen, keen reader. And I had, I took in fact, most of most of the the texts that I worked work, worked from were literary texts. Even mm. if I was looking at you know sort of cultural issues, it was all through the lens of of literature. Um, so, yeah, I think that you know literature is fundamental to understanding the times we live in, the times times gone by, the times future, um, and and you know the how what we enjoy in, in, in terms of both ideas and beautiful lies and yeah, a world without literature would be, would be a very dull place. Indeed.
0: I was actually going to ask you later uh, why you think reading literature is important, but I think you just answered that. So. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
1: you know, and and we can read anything we want. And that's one of the, that's one of the great joys of reading is that nobody well, unless you're in university, then you're forced to read all kinds of stuff you might not <laughs> want to read. Yeah. But otherwise you walk into a bookstore and you think, oh, that looks interesting. And all of a sudden you you know, your mind opens up into something completely different or into a different world. You know, one of my favorite escapes is just to take a zippy page turner and not get off couch for a day. Mm-hmm. Um, literature has the, the potential to transport you to so many places. So we can use it to escape. We can use it to, to feel deeply. We can use it to uh, think deeply. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's a world beyond our world and yet it's of our world at the same time.
0: I guess we can transition into talking about Orwell then. Um, I thought maybe we'd talk like a little bit about his life and um, I mean, how the way he thought and then, uh, how that sort of relates to Animal Farm itself. So Orwell. Let
1: me ask you, what what made you choose Animal Farm um, as one of your first podcasts?
0: Well, I do enjoy Orwell. I have read quite a few of his works. Uh, I think he's an interesting uh, historical figure as well as a, a writer. And I do have a a, a large interest in Russian literature and Russian history. I've read a lot of Dostoevsky <laughs> and uh, a lot of Tolstoy, and um, yeah, there's something really fascinating about Russian history and kind of tragic at the same time. And something about Dostoevsky himself that, like, his the era that he was living in, like, questions about religion, questions about social and political issues, um, somehow still resonates like very strongly to this day. But yeah, Animal Farm itself, I don't think it's very important work and sort of like a misunderstood work, I suppose, because I guess the meaning behind the satire, like most satires, is sort of being slowly lost. I mean, would you agree?
1: Well, Animal Farm, yeah, I mean, (laughs) the the great elasticity of Animal Farm, because it is it's an animal allegory, it's an animal fable, means that you can treat it as a children's story or you can treat it as the truly frightening sort of warning story that it is. So one of the fascinating things about reading Animal Farm, and yes, it's about, you know, uh, it, it's ostensibly about the Russian revolution, but really it's about where, you know, communism has arrived by 19, 1945, well, actually, he's writing it in um, in 1937. That's when he starts writing it. So let's, you know, maybe we should start by providing a little context into you said you were interested in Russia and why Animal Farm, you know, might appeal to you, because indeed Orwell Animal Farm is about Russia. It's it's a it's about sort of the uh, the dystopia. That, that Orwell sees in the USSR by 1937 after you know, the, the, the utopia of the Russian Revolution in, in, in 1918. And Orwell had been, uh, he'd been a really uh, staunch socialist and he'd gone to Spain to fight in the Spanish Civil War. But in the middle of 1937, in fact, he's, he's, he's wounded um, fighting in the Spanish Civil War. But in the, the middle of 1937, when the communists gained control of the Spanish government, they begin to hunt down the Trotskyists. And Orwell, who was in Spain, found himself um, among the victims. He was being now hunted by the, by the communists. Um, and he says that he, was, he and his wife were there, and then he says they were, they were very lucky to get out alive, and that many of his friends were shot, and others spent a long time in prison, or simply disappeared. So the manhunts in Spain were at the same happened at the same time as the the great purges um, in the USSR. You know Stalin is getting increasingly paranoid, and we're sort of a supplement to them. So that's where in 1937 Orwell begins to see the the dangers of totalitarianism and totalitarian propaganda, um, and how easily it can control the opinion um, of enlightened enlightened people in in democratic countries. That's really his worry. So Orwell never went to Russia, but to him, Russia was the sort of of the utmost importance. And he wanted the people of Western Europe to see the Soviet regime for what it really was.
0: Mm -hmm. And the Spanish Civil War was the socialists fighting the fascists?
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I believe Orwell was he was shot in the neck. He was an ambulance driver, I believe.
1: Yeah, he was shot in the neck. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow managed to survive that.
0: And the great purges, I don't think many people really know the history behind that, like the, the gulags and the, the political prisons. I think, I don't know what the, the number is estimated, but I've heard upwards to 100 million mm-hmm. um, individuals were sent through the political internment camps. A lot didn't make it out alive.
1: Well, yeah. And then, you know, there was just, there were other ways of getting rid of of people, starvation, you know. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, the the horrifying thing about Animal Farm is that it reduces those, uh, you know, those acts of political violence, or it it defamiliarizes those acts of political violence, uh, turns them into internal fights in the farm. And on the one hand, they seem sort of benign because, well, it's a you know the animals are purging the traitors among them. But yeah, when you look at the scale of it, um, what Stalin did to his own people, um, and then you know later what the communists did to to Poland in particular, or sorry to the Ukraine in terms of of you know starving the people who are providing the food for the rest of for the rest of Russia. Um, it, it's a regime that, and it's complicated, you know, because because Russia, without Russia, you know, Nazi Germany would have never been defeated. And, and but, the, but the Americans never wanted to really give Russia the credit for really winning the second world war because of the cold war immediately afterwards. And, and so Orwell's book comes at a very complicated time when it's published, a very complicated time in world history. Uh, because it's published in in 1945, finally. And we'll talk a little bit about the publication history. But it's also the time when the world is is really dependent on Russia to save it, essentially, from fascism. So it's a really politically and historically, he publishes it at a very difficult, at a time when people really didn't want to hear his message. And so he had a hard time publishing it.
0: Yeah, from what I read he was well one of the major reasons he wrote the the novel was because he didn't like that the left-wing intelligentsia was now championing Stalin because they were sided with because they were sided against the the Nazis, a lot of uh, a lot of individuals were commending Stalin and championing him because he was fighting the Nazis, but at the same time it's like the enemy of my enemy is not right. exactly my friend, if they are. Well, because yeah.
1: he'd seen what had happened in, in Spain mm-hmm. and because he'd been, you know, he, he he had himself had been sort of subject to to a purge like that. He had a very different perspective. And what he was more concerned about was not what was happening in Russia, but what was happening in England, right? Mm-hmm. Because in 1945, by 1945, he's really deeply embittered about the failures of democratic socialism. And he embittered in only the way a true believer could have been. And it was a political political ideology in which he in which he'd seen a lot of promise. So you know, the disappointment, Stephen Greenblatt sees Animal Farm, Stephen Greenblatt's one of our, you know the great literary critics of the 20th century, saw Animal Farm as a great cry of despair. So when he publishes it in 1945, what he's worried about, is the refusal of the British press and the BBC, in particular, to criticize the Soviet Union, um, and in the face of the possibility of electing another Labour government in Britain in 1945, so Orwell is worried about totalitarian, totali- the, the, the sort of totalitarian tendencies of communism, mm-hmm. um, or socialism that's drifted into communism in uh, in England in 1945. So Russia is sort of, yes, Russia is the target of the satire, but the audience is really England, uh, you know, a British audience. And they don't really want to hear much, you know, I mean, Russia has saved Europe. So it's, he's in a very difficult position.
0: Yeah. And what from what I've read, what I understand was that this book wasn't exactly supposed to be Anti-communist or really anti-socialist, it was really trying to warn about totalitarianism and totalitarian tendencies with the uh, the sort of ideology. But from what I understand, Orwell continued to be a, a democratic socialist until you know t- until the end of his life. I think.
1: Yeah, he was absolutely, but he really wanted to caution the British public and the Labour Party about the dangers of Stalinism. Mm-hmm. Lurking in the promise of socialism. So he never gave up on socialism, but he could see that, you know, totalitarianism was a real threat. But the British, you know, they don't really want to hear it at that point, right? It seemed really, I mean, it's interesting. It was turned down by Victor Galantz of the New Left Press. Um, and that was the press that Oral had been writing for. He'd wrote, written, they'd commissioned him to write The Road to Wigan Pier. I mean, he was very much a, a writer of, of, of the left, right? But um, Victor Glantz and the New Left Press wouldn't publish Animal Farm. In fact, there were four, I mean, think about it now. This is one of the most successful books of the 20th century, one of the most translated by the most widely books of the, you know, and this is true of so many books that go on to be classics. There were both American and British publishers turned it down. Partly, you know, the new left press turned it down they're, because they said, we don't have enough paper stocks because this is really right at the end of, <laughs> end of the, the Second World War, which was true to some extent. But Orwell felt very strongly that, and in fact, he wrote in, in an introduction to the book, which was called Freedom of the Press, which was not published with it when it was first published. He defined a writer's liberty to tell people what they do not want to hear. And nobody really wanted to hear it in, in 1945. And so, the ironically, the book gets buried in the rubble um, during the London Blitz.
0: <laughs> yeah, like literally buried in the rubble. His
1: Literally uh, buried in the His,
0: his house rubble. got knocked down and yeah, had to go, go retrieve it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, once it's published, it becomes one of the most popular and unpopular books uh, of the 20th century. And mm-hmm. it's translated into... 20 languages, declared one of the best books, but it was also banned in the USSR (laughs) and other communist countries until the 1980s. And in as late as 2002, the book was banned in the schools of um, the United Arab Emirates. Um, But that had a sort of different, partly because of the anthropomorphism of talking pigs, um, which wasn't, you know, sort of, kosher <laughs> Sorry, not halal. yeah um, but um but it's still banned in North Korea and it's censored in Vietnam as well. Mm-hmm. so it's 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 an incredibly potent turned out to be a very potent book, but it has a you know also this history of of censorship.
0: yeah, I was I was also well, it, it is a not a popular book amongst these um, more totalitarian countries. I was wondering if it also, garnered some unpopularity in the West, like maybe from some left-wing groups as well.
1: Well, you see, this is where it's interesting. I think that that in the in the West, I mean, particularly in the United States, it was very quickly turned into this kind of charming, like I have a, this is, I find the history of it so interesting. I have a, a copy, an edition from, let's see. I mean, I think it was received differently in, in Europe than it was in the U.S., but so I have a, I think it's probably a U.S. first edition, 1946, um, and this is from Harcourt. And, Harcourt and Brace published it, and you know, the paratext, <laughs> the, the in this case the cover and the flap, mm-hmm. you know, the, the sort of description on on the uh, on the the cover itself, which wouldn't have been written by Orwell. It was written by the publishing company, mm-hmm. calls it. They say it lives in the heart. Okay, so about this little book, there's the same kind of reality one concedes to Alice in Wonderland. Okay, so it's an allegory, you know. It lives in the heart as a direct story, as a story for its own sake. That's the definition of allegory. And yet, although the the author never intrudes or or points a moral, well, in fact, he does point a moral very, very (laughs) strongly. It never intrudes... Um, it also takes on meanings from what we have all noticed in the affairs of the world. I mean, how can it be more opaque than that? But this is, this is the sentence that gets me. To read it is an experience out of the ordinary for it goes at a bounce into that region where the heart and the head join together in enjoyment. Oh, good Lord. Anybody who's <laughs> read the book would never say that it goes together in that region of the heart and the head with joy and enjoyment. It's, it's a nasty little book. So it's manifestly once it gets to the, the States. And then, you know, very soon after that, it's turned into a, a, a film and you know, an animated film and the ending has changed. So it very soon is sort of contained in a way. The message of it is, is sort of diluted um, or, or willfully misconstrued. Mm-hmm. So in some countries it's seen as a as a as a dangerous book, um, you know, in countries where there's a totalitarian government in power, it's seen as a dangerous book, um, an offensive book, and in the West it's just kind of tamed,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: turned into a children's story. So the the political allegory is is removed from it, whereas in totalitarian states they understand the political allegory perfectly.
0: Yeah, it seems to have gone the way of something like Gulliver's Travels, where the original meaning behind the satire and the allegory is just forgotten, really.
1: But that's, you know, that is the case with satire. And, and the enduring satires are the ones where the story, you know, I mean, if allegory has, you know, points to historical events or points to another idea, but the story itself is is coherent and entertaining, then the, uh, the the political allegory falls away and all you're left with is the story. Yeah, exactly like Gulliver's Travels, which we now understand again as a children's book but was absolutely pointed pointed satire. And, you know, Swift had, you know, by the end of Gulliver's Travels it's quite clear that that Swift is deeply disappointed in humanity. Same with the end of Animal Farm, you know, Orwell Animal Farm is a distressing book. Mm-hmm. you know, as is Gulliver's Travels, and yet now they're children's books. So, you know, what's happened? Well, the the political allegory has disappeared because we're bad
0: historians.
1: Um, we <laughs> want to be entertained. We don't want, and we don't want to really understand uh, where these great books come from.
0: <laughs> yeah. I read Animal Farm for the first time when I was a teenager. I think I was uh, 16 or 17, and it wasn't for a class. And I've seen a lot of comments floating around online that this book used to be mandatory reading for like everybody in the United States and in Canada and now it's kind of being pushed aside a little bit or even a bit forgotten but when I read it I read it and I was like okay that was interesting um, I got a little bit of the, the stuff about totalitarianism but after you know I've read so much about uh, the Russian history and uh, what's going on in the USSR, And when I read it again recently, like within the past month, it's a devastating book, really. As Clover looked down the hillside, her eyes filled with tears. If she could have spoken her thoughts, it would have been to say that this was not what they had aimed at when they had set themselves years ago to work for the overthrow of the human race. These scenes of terror and slaughter were not what they had looked forward to on that night when Old Major first stirred them to rebellion. If she herself had had any picture of the future, it had been of a society of animals set free from hunger and the whip, all equal, each working according to his capacity, the strong protecting the weak, as she had protected the lost brood of ducklings with her foreleg on the night of Major's speech. Instead, she did not know why. They had to come to a time when no one dared to speak his mind, when fierce, growling dogs roamed everywhere and when you had to watch your comrades torn to pieces after confessing to shocking crimes. There was no thought of rebellion or disobedience in her mind. She knew that, even as things were, they were far better off than they had been in the days of Jones, and that before all else, it was needful to prevent the return of the human beings. Whatever happened, she would remain faithful, work hard, carry out the orders that were given to her, and accept the leadership of Napoleon. But still, it was not for this that she and all the other animals had hoped and toiled. It was not for this that they had built the windmill and faced the bullets of Jones's guns. Such were her thoughts, though she lacked the words to express them. George Orwell, Animal Farm.
1: It is a devastating book. It, it, it really is. So there's, you know, there's another level of allegory to it so there's you know the the story of the animals themselves and the revolution the revolutionary potential of manor farm and uh the animals overthrow uh mr jones and they take control of the farm and it's now they're working for the good of themselves instead of mr jones you know and so that's the the political allegory of of the the promise of communism over capitalism and then by the end of it we've landed in we've landed in totalitarianism, uh, where the power, you know, the pigs have taken power and they are now in essentially cahoots. I mean, they've turned into men. So they have now turned into the very thing that they were trying to, you know, the thing that they were trying to overthrow. So there's that's the story level. Then you get, yes, the allegory of, of the Russian revolution and then and then you know the the transition into Stalinism uh, from communism into totalitarianism, and then it the whole thing reduces to you know one other sort of allegorical statement. Let's put it that an adage, and this is this adage comes from Lord Acton, who said, "Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely." So you can take it, you know, that, if you take that message from it, absolute power corrupts, absolutely power corrupts. But if you give somebody too much power, there's no coming back from that. And I think we're in an age where we should be rereading Animal Farm. (laughs) You know, there's lots of concerns right now about totalitarianism again around the world. We're calling it authoritarianism. That's what we're calling it. And it's happening in Western Europe. It's happening in Eastern Europe. Um, it's happening in the United States. There, there are, yeah, we can kind of sniff it out in Canada as well. You know, that authoritarian tendencies are always there in politics because it's much easier to get things done. Democracies are very fragile things. And um, and I think that's a strong part of the message as well, is the fragility of political systems of equality.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and i don't really i don't think people realize how easily countries can slip into totalitarianism because we're very lucky i suppose in the west that we've maintained democracy to a certain degree and that the tendency is not towards freedom and that the tendency is actually you know a downward slope towards totalitarianism because power is such a such a alluring thing
1: absolutely absolutely you know when you have a when you have any power at all, and you know I was chair of the department for a while. That's been my only taste of <laughs> of a modicum of power. Believe me, it wasn't much. It was middle management, but I could see the frustrations of I just want to get this done, and I don't want to hear everybody whinging about. Oh, I don't like that. Like you're just whinging. You're not going to do anything. You're just obstructionist. <laughs> so there is a tendency to say, I have a vision. I want to, you know, I want to make this happen. And you're in my way. I get it at a very, very minor level. And so democracy is, in some ways, the least effective form of government. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's the most equitable, but it's the least, you know, I mean, if you look at the states right now, I mean, it's it's politically deadlocked. They're still sort of getting stuff done. But and you know, in Canada, we like min- minority governments because they keep power in check. Um, even though we don't think that any of our leaders are, tend towards authoritarianism, although there's a lot of talk right now about you know how how the COVID regulations have brought out an authoritarian. I wouldn't say totalitarianism. I you know I, I for the West, I think that's not an idea that. We can really uh, entertain, but authoritarianism, it certainly, absolutely. And it's a frightening, it's a frightening idea because what it does is it finds ways of suppressing uh, opposition. And that's exactly what Animal Farm tracks is how, uh, you know, a collective society or a democratic society or a socialist society can move so quickly towards authoritarianism.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. Uh probably don't want to get into the COVID stuff too much because uh, I don't want to get too political, but,
1: but I'm saying that's what, you know, that, that's Mm -hmm. one of the, the specters, I think that, that people who are, uh, you know, railing against uh, the the constraints and one of the specters that they, that they raise is, is this is authoritarianism. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's um, I guess what I'm saying, trying to say is that the discourse is alive and well, mm-hmm. and the problems are alive and well, and we might see you know there are lots of ways in which we want the government to regulate. I mean, we want the government to regulate public safety, but there's always the risk that it goes too far, mm-hmm. and so that tension that we're experiencing right now is a very important tension. We might not we might not agree with people on the other side of it, whichever side of it you're on, but it's still an important tension because if you didn't have that kind of opposition, then we would be, then we'd have to worry,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, and that's a hard thing to grasp that the freedom to disagree is a very important freedom. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Even if we disagree with the people who are disagreeing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, And it's not freedom of speech. It's a freedom of dis, it's a freedom. And I think Orwell's right about this you know, that is the freedom to tell people what they don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. That's that's what he says the writer's writer's liberty is. And of course, satire is a great vehicle for that Mm -hmm. because you can slip in that message in a form that makes, that is, it is entertaining.
2: Mm -hmm. It
1: should be some combination of humor and attack. And there are parts of the animal farm that are genuinely sort of disgusting and funny at the same time. It's grotesque. Mm-hmm. Lots of it is, is, is grotesque and it's hard not to laugh at it, but we laugh at it with uh, a kind of sinking feeling as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, some of this conversation reminds me of, uh, I guess the phrase has kind of become a cliche at this point, but if you don't learn from history, history is doomed to repeat itself.
1: Eh, history is going to repeat itself anyways, because we're idiots. <laughs> um <laughs> We yeah. don't learn from anything, really. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I really, you know, I I believe that for a long time. But the problem is that uh, we're not very, most people, I think, aren't particularly interested in history and history can be manipulated mm-hmm. and and easily manip- manipulated. So we can't assume that that, you know, history is a kind of monolithic thing. That's stable. No, I mean, it's always written. It's always written from a particular perspective. Let's put it that way. You know, there's a particular argument in the present that that history will um, support in some way. And it, yes, historical objectivity exists, I guess, but I wouldn't count on it. I think documents, documents don't lie, but they can't lie. They can lie, but it depends on how you assemble them and what you read from them. So. You know, history itself is always, always being manipulated. So the idea that you know we will learn from it—that even, even that idea is a bit
0: tenuous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, history is always colored with a with some sort of bias.
1: Well, we write it for our for the interests of the present. Let's put mm-hmm. it that way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and maybe Animal Farm, if it was written in Soviet Russia, might have been a, a happy children's story of a great success.
1: <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Maybe although <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm not sure how that story could have ever turned out well
0: yeah yeah I want to talk about the the animated version of the film I thought the history behind that was pretty interesting the the CIA collaborated with Orwell to create the 1954 animated version of Animal Farm
1: yeah it's it's a really. It's, it's it's kind of a fascinating story. So the the American CIA and this did, this didn't come to light until quite recently and this is a story that was published in The Guardian in uh, 2003. Now I I'm, perhaps people had written about it earlier, but in, in this is where I learned about it. in 1954, the the American CIA, obtains the film the film rights to the book now remember this is the height of anti-communism in the state so this is this is the beginning of the cold war the the purge the purge of communists from hollywood will will we'll start roy cohen and his and his hollywood purge will start uh soon in the late 50s early 60s the cia is is really invested in in destroying communism right mm-hmm. So they obtain the rights. So in some ways, Animal Farm is a perfect vehicle for them. So they obtain the, the film rights to the book in 1945, and they produce an animated version. So it's the first American animated version of Animal Farm. And it becomes this really important mouthpiece for American anti-communism. And it's Mrs. Orwell who signs over the rights after this guy, Joseph Alsop, who's an undercover Hollywood writer. So he's a CIA agent he's working undercover in Hollywood, arranged for her to meet her idol, Clark Gable. And, you know, you can't really make this stuff up, right? So the animation is interesting. The animation was produced in England and the target audience was adults, not children. So it wasn't a children's story. And to meet the CIA's objectives, they tur- they changed the ending. So in the ending of the book, you know, the, the, the pigs have taken control. They're now sitting down with... With the men. Gentlemen concluded Napoleon, I will give you the same toast as before, but in different form. Fill your glasses to the brim. Gentlemen, here is my toast to the prosperity of Manor Farm. So he's sitting down now with Mr. Pinkle, uh, Pilkington, Pilkinton, who's the farm next door. And of course, you know, the allegory is, is that these are all the countries around, around Russia that are now sort of cutting deals. There was a same hearty cheering as before, and the mugs were emptied to the, drugs, to the dregs. But as the animals outside gazed at the scene, it seemed to them that some strange thing was happening. Was it? What was it that had altered the faces of the pigs? Clover's old, dim eyes flitted from one face to another. Some of them had five chins. Some of them had four. Some of them had three. But what was it that seemed to be melting and changing? Then the applause having come to an end, the company having taken up their cards and continued the game that had suddenly been interrupted and the animals crept silently away. But they had not gone 20 yards when they stopped short An uproar of voices was coming from the farmhouse. They rushed back and looked through the window again. Yes, a violent quarrel was in progress. There were shoutings, bangings on the table, sharp, suspicious glances, furious denials. The source of that trouble appeared to be that Napoleon and Mr. Pilkington had each played an ace of spades simultaneously. 12 voices were shouting in anger and they were all alike. No question now what had happened to the faces of the pigs. The creatures outside looked from pig to man, from man to pig and from pig to man again, but already it was impossible to say which was which." Okay, so if this is an allegory of the Russian Revolution and and the Second World War, the end of the Second World War, then essentially you know orwell is saying look there's no difference between fascists and communists there's no difference between capitalists the capitalist capitalism and communism you know they they're both uh, authoritarian states like there's no there's no political difference well the cia has a huge stake in making sure that you know the american public understands that, that communism is a huge threat so they don't want a book that says mm you know, both capitalism and communism are essentially, the, they're essentially the same. So they change the ending. And in the film, only the pigs are corrupt. The men, there's no mention of men. It's all, it's all pigs at the table. So all the, all of the, 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 the men turn into pigs, right? Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, you know, capitalism and the West are safe from Orwell's allegory. Mm-hmm. so there's no mo- there's the film ends and interestingly so all the, the the you know the pigs are at the table and then the film ends with the other animals mounting a successful revolt against their re- their rulers well that's not the end of the book at all right so they manifestly they absolutely changed the ending and the change in ending was justified in order to give the audience hope for the future mm-hmm. so the ending orwell's ending was too bleak and the involvement of the CIA was the, a successful covert operation that was kept secret for the world for almost 50 years. It's it's really an extraordinary story.
0: Yeah. And the end of Orwell's novel, it seems, is that basically the, the communists turn into the capitalists. They become, I think, what does Major say at the beginning? Also remember that in fighting against men, we must not come to resemble him. Right. And by the end of the yeah, you know, the novel. That's exactly what happens, and the the co- the capitalists, uh, the ruling class, is no different from the communists. Exactly. Right. And and there's a point, even yeah, there's a there's a point where the who is it? It's Mr. Pilkington and Napoleon are conversing, and it even explicitly says, Mr. Pilkington, after much choking during which his various chins turn purple, he managed to get it out if you have your lower animals to contend with, he said, we have our lower classes. Right. Yeah. So that's like the direct comparison to like how communism ended up, like how it ended up oppressing anyone who wasn't a political, I don't know exactly who was favored in the, the communist regime, but how there was, was favoritism and how uh, the working class was just as oppressed as the working class under capitalism.
1: Well, I mean, and that was part of the point of, of you know, the purges was that they purged political dissident, dissidents, but they also purged, you know, vast numbers of, of their own people. You know, the KGB, Stalin establishes the KGB to keep the proletariat in line, right? Those are the dogs Mm-hmm. The dogs in animal farm that rip the throats out of the, the sheep and, you know, mostly the sheep. So the sheep are the proletariat that sort of go along with it. And, and nonetheless, when they bleat any opposition, they are, they're killed by the dogs. So every, essentially every political opponent was executed or, or put in prison. Stalin, by 1938, about 8.5 million people had been arrested. And nearly eight hundred thousand executed. So the way in which the proletariat were kept in place was through was through violence, right? Even though communism was supposed to be for the people, the any resistance to it produced violence, and and we still see that in authoritarian states. I mean, that is the definition of an authoritarian state: is that you cannot, uh, if you resist it, and we're seeing this now. You know, and obviously, in China's takeover of Hong Kong, for example, well, China's takeover—I mean, it's been very gradual political process—but nonetheless, there's no—you know—political opposition is no longer tolerated in in Hong Kong. So that's the, thats sort of the measure in some way. Do you have to keep your? Do you have to keep your population in line? And yeah, yeah, you know, I—I I think the rise in violence in the U.S. It's not. Is it political violence? Who's, you know, who's behind the violence? You know what? I mean, it's 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 much more chaotic uh, in the US. And yet you can see at some point that maybe it'll be more organized. But that's that is a way of suppressing political dissent. But anyway, I I I digress. You mean the police um, violence, right? Hmm?
0: You mean like the police violence that's yeah, happening? Police
1: violence, lots of guns in the hands of white nationalists mm-hmm. who could be easily sort of Corralled for political purpose, you know the KGB. Like who? Who will be the attack dogs? And that's why I say it's disorganized right now. But you can imagine that it would be, it could be much more organized. Yes, sorry, I've 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 lost my train of thought a bit. We were talking about the ending.
0: That's okay. And I I think it's kind of well ironic to say the least that this novel that was anti-authoritarian ends up being sort of weaponized by the U.S. in their anti-communist phase and the, their sort of purge, I suppose, in a way. Obviously not as violent as the, as the communist purge, but... that
1: uh, mm. was a kind of ideological purge. You know, mm-hmm. The worst thing you could say about somebody in the 50s was that they were a communist. Mm-hmm. And lots of people lost their jobs, blacklisted in, in Hollywood, in particular, black, blacklisted in politics, executed as spies. So yes, I mean, the numbers were not nearly as draconian as they were in, in uh, the USSR. Uh, but, and, you know, I mean, the threat was indeed real to some extent. I mean, uh, after the war, Russia takes over through a democratic process, most of, Eastern, most of Eastern Europe. So there's, and, you know, we see now the buildup in Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine is still um, a country that's being sort of contested. In a way, and and the site at this very moment between I mean, we are now 2000 January 2022. The site, uh, you know, of once again a kind of contest between Russia and 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 the West, Europe and and North America as well. I mean, you know, we're we are rallying our troops. So, which version of you know which political system will win out in the end? And in a way, Orwell says it doesn't really matter. And I think that's that's the the distressing, the really distressing notion of the book that if you allow any political system too much power, it will turn towards authoritarianism and it will fight itself for power as well. And again, that's what we're sort of seeing on the border of Ukraine.
0: Was Orwell more of a, I guess, libertarian, we should say, that he would rather the governments have as little power as possible?
1: No, I think he was genuinely socialist. I mean, I think he believed in socialism till the end, but he did not believe in communism. You know, he thought those were, those were very different things. He believed that things should be equitably distributed, but I think he had lost faith in that there was any political system. You know, his, his real worry is that it's so easy to slide in any political system, mm-hmm. into authoritarianism.
0: Yeah. And I read online that Orwell might've put himself into Animal Farm as the donkey, expressing, <laughs> yeah, expressing his uh, very, I don't know how I should say, nihilistic outlook or pessimistic.
1: No, no Benjamin is the cynic.
0: Cynic, right. The cynic,
1: yeah. So yes, pessimistic, but just really, just doesn't believe any any of it.
0: Only old Benjamin professed to remember every detail of his long life and to know that things never had been, nor ever could be, much better or much worse. Hunger, hardship, and disappointment being, so he said, the unalterable law of life. George Orwell, Animal Farm.
1: Yeah, there's no question that that Orwell is is the donkey. <laughs> Not a very flattering flattering portrait of himself.
0: Yeah, I read online that he, like his friends used to um, refer to him as a donkey. <laughs> Stubborn. Stubborn, yeah. But yeah, it seems like there is a a moment uh, near the toward the beginning of Animal Farm when it seems like things could work out. Like...
1: Yeah, there's huge optimism. Mm-hmm. Huge optimism, as there is in in any you know country that has a, a new government that has overthrown some kind of regime. Either way, whether it's overthrown a communist regime or or you know um, or a right wing dictatorship, um, huge optimism. Mm-hmm. And then all of the old problems creep back. You know, that's just that's the tendency in in Politics and human nature. I mean, thank God that we don't ever completely uh, uh, do away with our optimism. Mm-hmm. But Orwell, as as I think, you know, Greenblatt gets it right that this that Animal Farm really is a great cry of despair, and you can only have that despair if you've been optimistic to begin with.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I forget where I read, but I read somewhere that a true revolution. Well, that the communist revolution was a true revolution because a true revolution always comes back to the point where it started. Mm. Yeah, and there's sort of well, the the main pig, the pig that's based on Stalin. His name is Napoleon, and Napoleon is kind of like he was the he kind of took over the French Revolution, a revolution that was based on democracy, and became the the emperor of France.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's. As I say, we're a stupid species. <laughs> we really are. We can't seem to maintain ideals for very long um, because eventually, you know, self-interest creeps in and you can't have a leaderless society. We we need, and that's why people are so drawn to authoritarianism. You know, I mean, they, these politicians become authoritarian for a reason. I mean, they have lots of followers and the followers like clear rules you know an animal farm they they write the commandments and everybody agrees with the commandments and then the commandments start to change and well that's okay i can live with that and then they change again and it's like well okay as long as the rules are still clear i can live with that we like clear rules and that's what authoritarian does authoritarianism gives us clear rules democracy is much messier and much harder to live in And, and there's more conflict, quite frankly, ideological conflict, I I, I would say, because it's not, it's not suppressed and that's hard to live with, you know, and, and we know we're in the middle of huge social change and there's huge resistance to it. And that creates, you know, often you just would like someone to say, look, it's going to be like this. and This is what you have to do. Just follow this, follow this rule. Just behave this way and you don't have to think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, communism takes care of some of the anxiety, some of the, the 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 fundamental needs of its people. People are fed, they're housed, they have medicine, they have jobs. And I think we don't do a particularly good job of that in some respects in the West, and particularly in the in the States, you know, people are just if you can't afford healthcare, well, we can't afford healthcare, you know? I mean, think about the fights about just basic, uh, basic social safety net. So there's something appealing about a strong state that provides for its citizens. And in return, its citizens agree to a kind of, to abide by the rules and to be somewhat passive. Mm -hmm. So there are trade-offs, you know, we have all the freedom that we want, but we also have freedom to fail badly. And I think Canada's, you know, Canada so far has been a wonderful, has managed a balance between uh, a strong safety, social safety net and, you know, and democracy, but still there's lots of people sleeping on the street and it's, you know, homelessness, mental health issues. There's all kinds of things that we don't deal with very well. So it's a constant, it's our political systems are always going to be in flux but I think Orwell's message is very, very clear. You have to not allow any system to become completely dominant mm-hmm. because any system will, will tend towards corruption.
0: Yeah. And it seems like there's a, a constant need to, to sort of fight for, for freedom and democracy, whereas something like a, a, a dictatorship is easier to just do what you're told and go with the flow. Exactly. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, You know, your freedoms may be curtailed, but there may be other benefits.
0: Mm -hmm. It really reminded me in one of my courses, I'm doing a project on existentialism for Mm -hmm. a a psychology course. But so I was reading a bit of reading back a bit more of Dostoevsky. And there's a a part in the the Grand Inquisitor, which is a, a small short story within the Brothers Kremzov where the grand inquisitor basically argues that people need something to do. Like a person would rather um, throw himself into a fire than consent to living a life without a purpose. And that people are very willing to give their freedom away to someone as quickly as possible, because freedom is such like a heavy burden on people. And that's like, that's an innate part of human beings is that they have a tendency to hand their freedom to someone else. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think we're it's <laughs> distressingly true.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's uh, uh, your daily dose of pessimism for today. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think that you
1: chose this book, Thomas. <laughs> I know. I'm so
0: sorry, everyone who's listening. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was a very insightful, uh, uh, very great conversation. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: Uh, Read more satire. <laughs> mm-hmm. Take your freedom seriously. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you know, defend your right to say what you want, even if it's un- unpopular.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and really genuinely talk to people, you know, and listen, listen to, to, to divergent points of view. It's that's listen and engage, and that's how we keep democracy alive.
0: Mm. Would you say the the satirist or even the author in general can be a sort of you know, freedom fighter with their their work?
1: Absolutely Yeah, absolutely because what good satire does is it provokes a conversation. It doesn't it doesn't shut the conversation down. I mean it can if it's particularly vicious but good satire will make us think mm-hmm. and will generate will generate. A conversation, and and that's really what we want.
0: Thank you for keeping the conversation going, Professor Julia Crete.
1: My pleasure, Thomas. Thanks for this discussion. It was very fun.
0: Awesome. Would you like to plug any? Um, do you have any any books? Do I want to or... plug anything? Yeah. Nah. You're good.
1: <laughs> not really. Yeah, I could. Okay. You know. No, nah, not really. Uh, not even
0: Twitter handle. Nothing. <laughs>
1: nothing. No, nah, okay. You know, I have a website. It's my just look up juliacrete.com if you want to know more about my work, um, which is all over the place. So, yeah, I, that's that's my only plug, Thomas. Awesome, and I don't Perfect. care whether you use it or not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you so much.
1: Okay, take care. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Literature. If you want a zero cost way to support the podcast and hear more episodes like this, please consider. Just sharing this episode with a friend you think might be interested. You can also rate us on Apple Podcasts, give us a review. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to stay up to date. Check out my blog at ltlpodcast.com. And subscribe to the YouTube channel. Over there, I'm doing some poetry readings. All this information can be, of course, found on the website ltlpodcast.com. Okay, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.